0: Listening to sermons from South Point McDonough, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. Jump in Daniel chapter one. As we do, I don't normally tell uh, some of these good old-fashioned stories from my youth, but uh, I particularly like this one. And so, uh, a couple of decades ago, there was a couple, and they had been married uh, for about 50 years, and which was a really big deal. This couple married for 50 years, and so a local reporter went to this, uh, went to the husband. And he said, "How have you stayed married for 50 years?" And the man said, "Not only have we been married for 50 years, but we don't even fight." Then the reporter said, "Yeah, that's your reputation. Y'all don't fight with each other. No one's ever heard you fight or disagree in public. What is the secret to an argument-free marriage?" And so the man said, "Well, let me tell you how this marriage started. Let's go back to the beginning." He said, "On our wedding day, we had agreed, let's let's try to Argue as little as possible. So they got married and then they went and got on their horses. Remember, this is a long time ago, okay? Or else it's in West Virginia, I'm not sure. Uh, They both went and they got on their horses and they were riding away from their wedding ceremony. And as they were uh, several minutes down the road, the wife's horse began acting up. And so as soon as the horse did, she got off of the horse and she went into the horse's face and she said, That's one. She gets back on the horse. They ride a little bit further. All of a sudden, the horse starts acting up. It's not obeying. She stops. She gets off the horse again. She gets in the horse's face, and she said, that's two. She gets back on. They ride a little bit further. About half uh, half an hour goes by. The horse acts up a third time, and without hesitation, the woman gets off of her horse, grabs her revolver, puts it right between the eyes of the horse, and shoots him dead. So all of a sudden, the husband said, what are you doing? You can't just shoot a horse dead like that. What are you thinking? There's no way that you can think this is okay. And she looks at him and she says, that's one. <laughs> the book of Daniel for us this morning is both a warning like that and a road map. It is both a warning for us as believers, even here today, thousands of years after Daniel was written, It's a warning for us, and it's a roadmap. As we step into Daniel we just heard it read, we have to understand this concept of Babylon. Babylon is two things. It's two entities. It's two um, existences. One is the physical city and the land of Babylon. And we're going to see that throughout the book of Daniel. The whole book takes place in Babylon. And we see it in the very beginning. It says, and they went to the land of Shinar. Well, this is important because if we go back to Genesis chapter 11 and verse number two, we actually see that the tower of Babel is built in Shinar. So a lot of human history takes place in this geographic location that we know as Babylon. It's modern day Iraq. It's a very real tangible place on this globe. But secondly, not only is it a tangible place, a city, But Babylon is also a secular power that is active in the world today. So you're like, what do you mean by that? Just as real as the country of Iraq is, just as real as the city and the territory of Babylon was, just as real as the city of Shinar was, there is a secular power in the world today where man is in charge. And it's referenced all throughout the scripture as the spirit of Babylon. Everybody say "Spirit spirit of Babylon. Very real, very active, still there today. So before we jump in, I want you to see this. The spirit of Babylon is a counterfeit to the kingdom of God. So if you're a note taker, that's just right there kind of in the intro. The spirit of Babylon is a counterfeit to the kingdom of God. Since Satan fell, from God's grace, from God's presence in heaven. There has been a war raging all around us and it continues even today. So the reason a lot of us love the book of Babylon, we can't wait for the second half because we started looking at pictures and visions and dreams, and it relates a lot to the book of Revelation. In fact, as we've done polls in the past of South Point, and if you go to pretty much any church who polls their people and says, Uh, what book would you like us to preach through next? 10 to one, the response is Revelation because it's so intriguing to us, because it's so weird. But the book of Revelation is not just about the future. The book of Revelation is not just about the future. You see, John, as he writes through the book of Revelation, he uses allegory and he uses metaphors to describe a spiritual power that has been at work all throughout human history. And it continues to be at work even until today. But he describes the spiritual power that is at work and he discusses and talks about in these dreams and visions of how it impacts and affects the physical realm where we are. So if you look at the book of Revelation, it begins with, here's what has happened, and then it goes into the church age, and we saw that some last week, beginning in chapter six of Revelation, and then it looks into the future. Here's what you can expect. It's not all about the future, but it's about a spiritual power and presence that is impacting and affecting the world around us. We see a few hints of this in Matthew chapter six, Jesus tells Peter, sorry, Matthew 16, he tells Peter, he says, Get behind me what? Isaac. Satan. Now, does that mean that Peter was actually, had he morphized, I don't know, is that a word? Uh, morphed? Yeah, we'll do that. Has, did he actually morph into Satan at in that moment? No. Jesus was not addressing the man standing before him, he was addressing the power that was beneath him. We see the same thing in Revelation chapter 14. In Revelation chapter 14, Jesus discusses the power that is behind and underneath the nations of the world. Ephesians chapter 6, Paul says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. The things that we see, but we're wrestling current tense against what? The powers and the principalities of darkness. Those things that we cannot see. And friends, those things have not changed since then. They may look a little bit different today, But the power is still there. The spirit of Babylon is still present and still at work today. Today, we see the spirit of Babylon, I believe, and this is not an exhaustive list, but I think we see the spirit of Babylon at work still in evil nations, nations like North Korea, like Iraq. We see the spirit of Babylon active in sex trafficking, in the drug cartel, in abortion clinics. We see the spirit of Babylon active in preachers who are preaching a false gospel. We see it at work in the pornography industry and in corporate greed. But can I tell you this this morning, friends? Even though the spirit of Babylon is a counterfeit, this is not something new. And this is not something that we just simply relent to. Here's what I want us to know. If you call yourself a Christian, Hold on to this truth. Followers of of Jesus are never at home in this world. So we can look around at this power and we can be scared. This is not, the book of Daniel is not simply just a warning. It is both a warning and a roadmap. It's both of those things simultaneously. Followers of Jesus are never at home in, in this world. And Christian, believer, You are always in exile in this world. You are always in exile in this world because we are at war with the spirit and the power of Babylon. This is not our home. We're pressing forward to our forever home. But for today, we must be aware of the spirit of Babylon. So we're going to begin there. Three things I want us to see in this passage, and I have these broken down uh, into these verses. We look at verses 1 through 7. We're going to see that the spirit of Babylon wants to ruin you, it wants to redefine you, and it wants to re-identify you. The spirit of Babylon wants to ruin you, redefine you, and re-identify you. As we look at the word of God, I I want you to repeat these words after me. Psalm chapter 119 and verse number 18. I'll say these lines, repeat these after me. This is our prayer this morning as a church. Open my eyes that I might receive God's wonderful word to me. Amen. Daniel chapter 1, the first thing that we see is that the spirit of Babylon wants to ruin you. So if, as we look at the passage here, and we're just going to walk through these first seven verses, while partaking the Lord's Supper and communion together, we're going to respond with a song. And so I would ask you, as we read through these, let's not see this as a historical text. Let's see this as something that is incredibly applicable for our lives today. We can identify with the characters in this. Daniel begins, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And besieged it. This very first verse, we see a lot of history taking place here. It says here it's in the third year of the reign of this king. Now, I already had somebody. The very first question I got about Daniel when we when we said we were going to do uh, the book of Daniel, the very first question I got was, okay, so why does Jeremiah say it's the fourth year of the reign of King Jehoiakim, and this says the third year? This is crazy. I already can't trust the book of Daniel. That's not what this person was saying. But from the very beginning, we have those who would say, man, Daniel is not really trustworthy. We don't know what we should do with this. But can I just tell you that there are two different calendars at use here. One is the Jewish calendar and one is the Babylonian calendar. One says it's the third year of his reign. One says it's the fourth year of his reign. If you ever go overseas, a lot of European countries, uh, if you get on an elevator, you're going to go up to the first floor then the second floor, then the third floor. I was on an elevator yesterday. Guess what floor I was on initially? The first floor. And so 100 years from now, if me and somebody from Europe write a story and they begin comparing it and everything happens on the second floor, but here's the first, nobody's mind is really going to be blown, okay? We get it. It's just two different ways of looking at numbers. In fact, if you go to a lot of African countries, the first day that you're born, you are one year old. And then, after you've been alive for a year, you turn two years old, okay? So if we look at the third year, fourth year, if your life groups look at it, if somebody's like, you can't even trust it from the very beginning, just now we're looking at it slightly from two different perspectives. Word of God, still faithful, true, authoritative. Everybody good with that? All right, amen, let's go. Uh, We see that this guy, Jehoiakim, we see right there, it's the reign of Jehoiakim. This is important, because up to this point, we've had a lot of really terrible kings. And then we get King Josiah what age was josiah when he became king eight yeah real little dude eight years old when he becomes king i've got a a son his name is king Uh, he's about to turn eight man he would love it it would be terrible for the rest of us but but jehoiakim is josiah's son incredibly ungodly man of what was supposed to be a godly nation. But the nation was in shambles. In fact, Jehoiakim was so terrible that at one point he took the scroll of the law and he cut out the word of God, the law, line by line, and he burned it in front of God's prophets. That's what he thought about the word of God. What's crazy is that his approval rating in Israel was still really high. People loved Jehoiakim, but God despised him. So we already see the contrast here between what was supposed to be a godly nation was absolutely godless, beginning even at the top of the nation. As a result, we see at the end of verse number one, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Back in Leviticus, God had told the people of Israel how to live, how to function, how to take care of the land, how to take care of each other. And instead of obeying God and relying on him as their king, they said, we think we know better. We're going to disobey you. And we see this cycle of disobedience, of punishment, of repentance, of the grace of God coming in. Okay, God, we'll follow you. Five minutes later, disobedience. For years and years, God finally says, what in the world? He punishes them. They hate the punishment. God, we're so sorry. Okay, I'm God. I'm merciful. I'm gracious. Okay, thanks. We'll worship you. Like 10 minutes later, disobedience. We see this cycle all throughout the Old Testament. Right here, we know this as the exile, a huge point in Israel's history. And so, as a result of them not stewarding the resources of God well, they are under the punishment of God. And last week we said that exile is part of punishment. It's not. We can't just say, well, it's punishment, so the entire thing is bad. It's contrary to God's plan. No, we know that this is still part of God's plan. And even through this, God wants to teach his people, everything that you have is from me. You are to be a steward of the resources I have given you. Today, friend, your time is God's time. Your family is God's family. Your money is God's money. Your web browser is God's web browser. He is still in complete control. Lest you think that he has stepped back. His judgment is real. His mercy is real. He is still on his throne, even while the spirit of Babylon seems to be so strong. That's just verse one. Anybody pack a lunch? Everybody everybody good? Verse number two. Here's what they came to Jerusalem and did. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. Notice this right here. I want to highlight the second half of this verse with some of the vessels of the house of God. Notice what he did with the vessels. He goes into the temple. He takes, uh, we don't know exactly what he took here. We see a little bit later on some of the details, but he goes into their place of worship, into their holy place, into the holy of holies. He takes these vessels from the house of God, second half of this verse, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the the house of his God. And he placed the vessels on the treasury of his God. You see, in this day, it wasn't a matter of our army is better than your army. Our people can defeat your people, but it was a matter of our God is better than your God. Our gods have defeated your God. The issue for them was theological. So when we see besieged We see this is the heart of ruin. The spirit of Babylon wants to ruin you. It wants to destroy the image of the one true God. It wants to break that down and say, look at all these other really good gods in Yahweh's place. But we have to go back to the beginning of that verse. And we can't skip over this. These four words are crucial to the book of Daniel. Verse number two, right at the beginning. And the Lord gave. And the Lord gave. Who's in charge? God. Now think about it from the Israelites' perspective here. They don't have verse two. All they have is verse one. Then they're like, man, everything just hit the fan. All of it. Our homes are wrecked. We've been taken out. Our families torn apart. We don't know what's going on. They don't know that the Lord gave them into the hands of the Babylonians. They don't have verse 2. They're living verse 2. But, friend, we know this morning that God is in control. Amen? And we say amen as long as life is going really well. Amen? Yeah, that's like, wait, he set us up on that one. I don't like this guy. As long as things are, as as long as life is going the way it's supposed to, then we're okay with God being in control. And if I love God, if I do the things that I'm supposed to be doing, then God has to do his part, right? Friend, redemption, being bought at a price, the sacrifice of Jesus on your behalf, redemption, redemption is not about having your best life now. Redemption is even not about having a better life here on this earth. If you think that turning to Jesus Christ in faith, it means that you're going to get a better job or that your marriage is going to be salvaged or that your kids are going to be successful or that you are going to be happier, then you don't understand redemption Because right here in the midst of exile, in the midst of having everything taken away from them, Daniel knows that he is a citizen of a better kingdom. He knows that he is the slave of a better king. So I would plead with you this morning, church, don't give in to the counterfeits. Don't do it. The spirit of Babylon wants to ruin you. Don't trade the God that you know and worship the Yahweh for a lesser God. Don't trade those things away. The pull is so strong, but it leads to destruction. So the spirit of Babylon wants to ruin you. Secondly, in the beginning of verse number three, we see that the spirit of Babylon wants to redefine you. Look at these verses here. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of nobility. Notice who they choose here. They chose these young men. Uh, Most of them were about 14 years old because from 14 to 17 was the age of which these young royal nobles would have been educated. And so he wanted those so that he could educate them and give them places of power and position in the kingdom of Babylon. He knew they were good looking. That's what it says right here. He picked the good looking guys. He picked those who were strong, those who were smart. They had a high uh, intellectual quotient, a high IQ. They had a, a high emotional quotient, a high EQ. These are the best of the best and they've been torn from their families. They've been torn from their religion. They've been torn. And what has been taken from them is even the opportunity to have a family. We see they've been, they've been taken, and Babylon wants to redefine them. Here's the way that Babylon, i read these verses. Verse number four. They were used without blemish, of good appearance and skillful and all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. Remember, we said that's the same language as the Babylonians. Verse 5. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. The spirit of Babylon wants to redefine you. Here, Three ways that it attacks, three ways that it skillfully seeks to destroy. The first thing that the Spirit of Babylon does, and we see this, we see an example of this here in the passage. The first thing the Spirit of Babylon does is it attacks healthy human sexuality. It attacks healthy human sexuality. Ever since Genesis 1, verse 27, and God made them male and female, since then the enemy has been in attack mode, in every single generation. We see it here. Look back at verse number three. The king commanded Ashpenaz, as the chief eunuch. Now, here's what you need to know. You ready? Write this down. Here in the Hebrew, the root of eunuch is the same root word for unicorn. Totally kidding. Okay, but the chief eunuch, it means that they would bring him in, bring these men in, and since he was the chief eunuch, they made them eunuchs also. So one of the very first things that happens to Daniel is gender reassignment surgery. Mm. At that point, I'm pretty sure I'd be done. God, I don't know what, you know what, I'm done. I'm done with you. I can't believe that. This comes after verse number two, and the Lord gave. Friends, can I tell you that even today, behind the gender spectrum that we have that is so incredibly fluid and so subjective, behind the gender spectrum is the spirit of Babylon because it seeks to attack healthy human sexuality. Secondly, the spirit of Babylon seeks to kill our children. They came and took those who were young, who were vibrant, the best of the best, while they were still impressionable, where else do we see this idea of the spirit of Babylon seeking to kill the children? Well, went back and if you look uh, early Old Testament, the nation of Canaan, the Canaanites, they had a god that they worshipped named Moloch. Everybody say Moloch. In order to worship Moloch, what they did is they would sacrifice their children to him in an act of worship. So we see this has been taking place for years. The spirit of Babylon seeks to kill these children. But if you look at the Egyptians, about the time that Moses was born, the evil spirits led the Egyptians to kill little children. We see it again, King Herod, about the time that Jesus was born. What does he seek to do? He seeks to kill children. In Revelation chapter 17, the the author John says that the spirit of Babylon is the mother of prostitutes who seeks to destroy the offspring of the people of God. Today, we call it abortion. It's the same spirit of Babylon. It's the same secular power that has been at work for thousands of years. It seeks to destroy, to kill our children. The third thing that we see here is that the spirit of Babylon, in order to redefine you, it indoctrinates you in the world. The spirit of Babylon indoctrinates in the world. Now, the spirit of God indoctrinates in the word. But the spirit of Babylon indoctrinates in the world. You see, King Nebuchadnezzar brought these young men in. His goal was not just to educate them as good Babylonians. His goal in educating them was to turn them into Babylonians this was a reverse evangelism project. He wants to remove all of their religious structure and system from them. Now, for him, it took how many years? How many years were they in education there? We just saw it. How many years? We saw it in verse number five? Three. For us, how many years does it take? Four. It's called college. For some of you, you're like, four? It took me seven. Okay, well, it's supposed to take Four. We send our kids off. I had a conversation with a lady a matter of weeks ago, and she said, my daughter is about to go off into school, and she's going to be, I'm not going to tell you what she's studying because she might hear this, and she's going to be hearing these things from an evolutionary worldview, and I'm so scared to death. I thought a few things. One, who's paying for her education? Oh, you are. Okay, so your hands are completely tied. Secondly, You've had her for the past 18 years of life. You see, friends, we're scared to death of Daniel 1. Rightfully so. If you are a parent, you should be scared to death of Daniel 1. This is a warning. Don't forget, this is also a roadmap. Because we're scared to death because of Daniel 1, because we forget our responsibility back in Deuteronomy chapter 6. To love, have them write this on their foreheads. Train up a child in the way he should go. When he's old, he won't depart from it. Love the Lord your God with your heart, your soul, your mind, with everything that you are. And if we've done that, can, can I promise you success in parenting? No, I can't. But we have failed on Deuteronomy 6. So we are scared to death of Daniel 1 whenever it gets here. Here's the problem. We are already there. Daniel 1 is already here. This is not something that's happening in the future. This is not a warning this morning on September 11th, 2022, about what's going to happen in the future. It is here. Look at our college classes, but even way before that, let's go back to elementary school. How we have this gender spectrum. This morning I opened up Spotify uh, and I've never seen this before maybe it's maybe it's always been there but it had like some suggestions for me and it had a few podcast options but one of the categories the very first one that was I couldn't believe it I actually screenshot it on my phone it said play your part play my part in what I started scrolling through every single podcast they were suggesting had to do uh, with gender equality had to do with how to discuss being bisexual with your children had to do with transgenderism how do you discuss this with your children and I thought that I'm, that's not the part I'm playing. Right under that, it had another category of selections, dinner time conversations. I started scrolling through those. They're uh, not in the same vein, but I thought none of this stuff. And then the third category I saw, it actually it said lazy Sunday morning. I thought, yeah, the reason I have these first two is because for the past couple of generations, we as the people of God have had a bunch of lazy Sunday mornings. We have not been walking through the word of God to be rightly educated with how to pursue others with the good news of the way that they were created in the gospel of grace that we have in Jesus Christ. We have forsaken parents. We have forsaken the greatest responsibility that we have here. And some of y'all would say, well, man, I've, I really messed up as a parent. had a conversation this past week, but man, I wish I would have known that. I wish I would have started sooner. Can I tell you this morning, I'm not here to beat you over the head and say, what in the world were you thinking? I want to invite you into the grace and mercy of Jesus and say, just like me, just like you look around. We're all broken, messed up people. The book of Daniel is a warning, but it's also a roadmap. How do we respond today to the grace of Jesus? can also say that the the secular culture has begun in the elementary school we see it pervading our entertainment choices whether it's on spotify or netflix hulu whatever it is today used to even a couple of years ago i could sit this afternoon and watch football praise god uh, with my kids and not worry about the commercials that were there this afternoon when i do that i'm gonna have to probably mute the commercials turn the tv off for a moment things are progressing we can look at, at sports, at movies, entertainment, music, the things that we put our children into. We can't just say, oh, well, I, I, didn't, I didn't know. It's not my fault. It's the I got to do that. What about travel ball? <laughs> I know Henry County, I might get in trouble for this. But on so many weekends, we've said, you know what's most important? is sports. You know, I... I really don't have time to parent my kids, so I'm gonna stick a a tablet in front of them and let that tablet do the parenting. I mean, I'm 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 really doing the best I can, but I've just got to do that. And it's not so much that the spirit of Babylon has come and attacked us and we are being beaten down. We are surrendering to the spirit of Babylon, friends. And we are laying our children on the altar of the enemy. Next weekend begins fall break, I believe. For many of us, we're going to be gone from right before fall break to right at the end of, and we're going to come back exhausted. Man, I don't know why I do this every time. Am I telling you, hey, if you're not here on Sunday, you're going to hell? I'm not saying that. Take some time with your family. But here's what I'm saying is if month after month, the priority of your life is to travel and to entertain and to indulge, and to sleep in, and to be lazy, and to procrastinate, then you may have no one to blame except for yourself when the spirit of Babylon has taken up residence in your home. And I pray that's not true. Don't hear this as a condemnation. The past week or two, you can ask my life group, people who are close to me, I have felt like a terrible parent. You're not hearing it from a guy who's got it all together. You're not. But you're hearing it from a guy who loves you and your family. I want the best for you. Two truths we see here in this passage, two things. And this ties in to this education incentive of the Babylonians here, of these Jewish people. Two things that we, that we know. You will always drift from people of faith before you drift from your faith. Why is it vital that you're tied into a local church community? If you come here this morning, you're like, hey man, this is not the church for me. You know what? That's fine. Be tied in with the people of God somewhere. Please, please pursue the mission of God in your home, in your neighborhood, with a local body of believers somewhere, Please. These folks, they had been taken from their home in Jerusalem 700 miles away to Babylon. It was so much easier to re-indoctrinate them when they were not tied to the same people of faith. But secondly, where the people of God are not submitting to the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Babylon always fills that void. The Spirit of Babylon always fills that void. Hear me on this. Unified unbelievers will always be stronger than ununified believers. Unified believers, those who are under the control of the spirit of Babylon, will always be stronger than the Lone Ranger Christian. South Point, South Point, McDonough. I don't point my finger at the people in Locust Grove. I mean, I could, but I'm not going to. I'm just kidding. Mostly kidding. Gossip, anger, division, always being right, always finding the fault, the inability to forgive, that's the spirit of Babylon. The spirit of God is one that brings unity, one that brings peace. Thirdly, we see in these last two verses, verses six and seven, not only does the spirit of Babylon want to ruin you and want to redefine you, but the spirit of Babylon wants to re-identify you. We see here the change in names. We see it in verses six and seven. Uh, I'll put these up here on the screen for you, uh, but you have it right there exactly in the verse uh, in, the, in these two passages. Daniel's name, it says it has changed to Belteshazzar. Everybody say Belteshazzar. Yep, so Daniel means God is my judge. Belteshazzar uh, in Babylonia means Baal or Bel will protect. Now, Daniel's name is actually prophetic because Daniel doesn't care who judges him. Throughout the book, we see that Nebuchadnezzar can't judge him. We see that Babylonia cannot judge him. We see that Satan cannot judge him. Only God can judge him. That's who he lives for, is God. His name is prophetic. Secondly, Hananiah means Yahweh is gracious. His name is changed to Shadrach, which means under the command of Aku, which is a local moon god. You see here that the comparison between these? They're saying, no, 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 not Yahweh, but this god. Thirdly, Mishael means who is like Yahweh. Also, that's where you get the name Michael. He uh, is changed to Meshach, which means not who is like Yahweh, but who is like Aku, this moon god. Lastly, Azariah means Yahweh is my helper. Abednego means servant of Nebo, which is another local god. For in the spirit of Babylon does not care who you worship, as long as you are not worshiping the one true God. It doesn't care if it's Aku, if it's Nebo, if it's Baal, it doesn't care. But what does Jesus say in John fourteen six? He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The spirit of Babylon does not want you to get to the Father. Hey, look at all these other options, just, just pick one. As long as it's not Jesus. You know what's ironic, though, about this entire book? When these men refer to themselves, they always refer to themselves throughout the book of Daniel by their Hebrew names. And often, Daniel is even referred to by the Babylonians as Daniel. As we get into chapter 6, we're going to see that as he's down there in the lion's den, the king comes up and says, Daniel, has your God protected you? The other thing that uh, linguists and historians, theologians who are much smarter than me would say is that as we look at chapters 2 through 7, remember that's written in Aramaic. Every single time these men's names in the Babylonian Aramaic are written, Belteshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, every single time they're written there in in the original texts, they're actually misspelled. They're misspelled every single, and they're always misspelled a little differently. And linguists would say the reason they were doing that is because they were making fun of the Babylonian gods. They were doing it just kind of poking somebody right in the eyeball. You may call us this, but this is not our real name. Here's what we need to know from that, friend. Brother, sister, the world can change your name, but only the one true God can change your nature. These men knew whose they were. They knew who they were. They knew who had given them their identity. They knew who they served. I would plead with you again, don't give in to the counterfeit of the spirit of Babylon because in Christ, you have a new nature. No matter what happens to you in this world, Jesus Christ is still on the throne. He is the one who gave, he is the one who provides. When we look at this story, uh, the temple had been in ruins. They came and they besieged the temple there in Jerusalem. And here's what that means. The temple was besieged, it was ruined, it was torn down. Think about this, and for us we're like, okay, yeah, that really stinks. We can't compare though to if they came and tore down this building at 171 Racetrack Road. Like, oh man, that would be terrible, I would hate it. But think about it from the perspective of this 5th, 6th, 7th century BC Israelite. That was the only place that they went to worship in the world. And the reason they went to the temple is because that is where the presence of God dwelt physically, literally, spiritually, the presence of God was there in the Holy of Holies. And from Daniel and his friend's perspective, it was literally impossible to remove the presence of God. It was impossible for the temple to be brought to ruin. But what did the Babylonians do? They went and tore down the temple, which doesn't mean they just took the stones and the timber and break it down. Oh, what are we gonna do now? Essentially, the way they would have understood it is that their religion, their Jewish nation identity was completely decimated and over. For these men, it could not get any worse. They were done. But what we're gonna see through the book of Daniel is that Daniel held on to the promise of God, even when it seemed impossible. I'm reminded of when Jesus Christ was in the grave, he had just been put to death and all of his disciples and followers, man, this is the person we've been looking forward to. This is the Messiah, but then he's dead. He's done. There is no more. Christ's body is lying there, lifeless. But friend, the plan of God was not over. It had not been thwarted. Maybe you come in here this morning and you say, Man, I came in here defeated. Can I tell you that you can walk out of here this morning in victory? Maybe you walked in this morning in death, but you can leave with the life of Christ. Because we saw in verse number two, and the Lord gave, but One of the most familiar verses is not the most familiar one in all of the scriptures. And if you watched enough college football yesterday, then you probably saw it behind one of the end zones. But you saw John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he did what he gave. His one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but has everlasting life. The ultimate gift of Jesus is an invitation into forgiveness, into hope. Christ came and he identified with us. In being a man, he took the wrath of the Father on himself on the cross. He was placed into the ground, but three days later, he rose victorious over the spirit of Babylon, over an enemy that we could not defeat. He ascended to the right hand of the Father and he said, I'm coming back to get you one day. Hang on. Don't give in to this lesser king, to this lesser kingdom. Don't make a home for yourself here. I'm making a home for you there. I'm a better king. That's a true kingdom. You will become part of my home. You are mine. That's the hope that we have to look forward to, friend. Jesus Christ became sin for us so that we don't have to eat the food and drink the wine of a lesser king but we get to eat the food and drink the wine of the true king. We get to take part in his body that was broken. We get to take part in his blood that covers us. So now we are seen as righteous, as righteous. There's the hope, there's the life, there's the promise. This morning, we're going to participate in this meal together, those who have placed their hope and their faith in Jesus Christ. And I would plead with you to repent of the spirit of Babylon that you have been pursuing with his empty promises. Pursue the spirit of God. He has made himself known. He has tabernacled among, among us. His presence is here even now this bread and this juice it reminds us of that this community here as you look at each other it reminds us of that as we've opened the word of god and look at the book of daniel it reminds us of that don't leave and say you know what man that's good but you don't understand my life you don't understand what i need right now jesus christ does he is all satisfying respond to him in faith this morning friends and family this meal is for those who are in good standing with a local church, a body of believers, I would plead with you, if you do not know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, just stay in your seat. This is for those, this is a reminder, like we said during the time of confession, of baptism, of our new identity. This is a reminder of our identity in Christ, of our new nature, one that the world cannot take away or change. If you're in sin, this is a chance for you to repent. If you need to go and repent to a brother or a sister or a wife or a kid, do that now. Let's be reminded of what Christ has done and rejoice that we're gonna be at home with him very soon. As soon as we get done, uh, Jason and Maria are gonna lead us in a new song. It's called Almost Home. And so I would encourage you as we learn these words and sing them together, Our hope, our anchor, our foundation is not in what we see. Our hope, our foundation is in heaven. That's where we're going. We're running there together. Let's celebrate that new life through the life and the death and the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Family, you're invited to join me.